Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. We're really happy to be with you celebrating Silicon Valley Reads 2024. A Greener Tomorrow starts today. I'm Jennifer Weeks. I'm the County Librarian for the Santa Clara County Library District. I'm one of three co-chairs of the Silicon Valley Reads, along with um, City Librarian Jill Bourne, who is here with us tonight from San Jose Public Library, and Dr. Mary Ann Dewan, County Superintendent of Schools. And unfortunately, Dr. Dewan isn't able to be with us in person, but she sends her warm greetings to everyone and her appreciation for your participation and support in Silicon Valley Reads. So Silicon Valley Reads happens with the support of our community. We want to thank our advisory board members who have played a key role in helping keep Silicon Valley Reads relevant and current throughout the years. Thank you so much for all of your hard work. So as most of you know, Silicon Valley Reads is a community engagement program made possible by community support. And our program couldn't happen without our donors. You can see a list on the back of your program, but I'd personally, for all of us, like to thank our donors and give them a special acknowledgement to our major donors. The County of Santa Clara, Los Altos Library Endowment, Elise and Michael Parsons, the Silicon Valley Library System, Friends of Cupertino Library, Silicon Valley Clean Energy, San Jose Clean Energy, Cupertino Library Foundation, Friends of the Saratoga Libraries, Santa Clara County Library District Foundation, First Five, and NBC Bay Area. Many of these people are here tonight, and we so appreciate your support. Our sincere appreciation also goes out to our moderator this evening, who is with us for the first time, Damien Trujillo from NBC, and our featured authors and essayists, who will, you will hear from shortly. We would also like to thank De Anza College for generosity donating this venue for tonight's event and supporting us with the art show Sacred Terrain at the Euphrat Museum of Art off the lobby. Now I'd like to introduce Patrick Aherns, president of the Foothill De Anza Community College District Board of Trustees to say a few words. Thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, is this not a wonderful facility here at De Anza College? Uh, my name is Patrick Ahrens. I have the honor of being on the Board of Trustees for the Foothill De Anza Community College District. And on behalf of everyone here in the district, I'd like to welcome you to campus. Please come back and take some classes, enrichment courses, or join our farmers markets and flea markets on the weekend. There's so much to offer here. Um, just a few points before we begin. Uh, for those of you who may not know, I'm so proud of this district where I am a product of. We were the first in the nation to pass a LEED Platinum building on our campus, and that's our Kerr Center of Environmental Studies. We were the first in the nation to pass a policy to fully decarbonize and fully electrify our campus by 2035. And we made it rain today so that apt with our theme a greener tomorrow will start today thank you for braving the weather out um, i'd now like to introduce our san jose public librarian jill Bourne. thank you 
Thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. So hello and welcome this evening. Um, thank you for making out on such a rainy night. I am Jill Bourne. I'm the director of the San Jose Public Library and co-chair of Silicon Valley Reads. And it is my pleasure to introduce our moderator and our authors for this evening. So I will ask them each to please come out as I introduce them. First, uh, Damien Trujillo. Since 1996, Damien Trujillo has been an NBC Bay Area news reporter, host, and producer of Comunidad del Valle, the longest-running public affairs program in the Bay Area. Damien grew up in the Salinas Valley and worked with his family in the agricultural fields. In honor of his roots, each Cesar Chavez holiday, Damien's family makes sack lunches and distributes them to roughly 250 farm workers in the South Bay. Damien has three children, a daughter at George Washington University, and a set of twins. Welcome, Damien. Next is Heather White. Heather is the author of the book, One Green Thing. She is a nationally recognized conservation and environmental policy expert and a frequent spokesperson in the national media on climate, energy, and conservation issues. White's two decades of experience include serving as a presidential campaign staffer for Al Gore, the Environmental Council to a U.S. Senator, and the executive director of three national environmental nonprofits. She has been featured on Good Morning America and quoted in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and my favorite, Teen, teen Vogue. <laughs> Heather is about to release her second book, 60 Days to a Greener Life, Ease Eco-Anxiety Through Joyful Daily Action this April. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. Our next author is Lily Brooks Dalton. Her book, The Light Pirate, was a number one indie next pick for December 2022. A Good Morning America book club selection, one of NPR's books we love, and a New York Times editor's pick. She's also the author of Good Morning, Midnight which has been translated into 17 languages and was the inspiration for the film adaptation, The Midnight Sky. She wrote a memoir, Motorcycles I've Loved, which was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award. She lives in Los Angeles. Welcome, Lily. Next is Alexandra, sorry, Alexandria Villasenor. At the age of 13, Alexandria began her activism after experiencing the campfire one of the deadliest wildfires in California history. As her knowledge and activism grew, in, in 2019, she founded Earth Uprising International. Now a high school senior, Alexandria has become an internationally recognized environmental activist, a public speaker, and an author. She addressed the 2020 Democratic National Convention, the United Nations, NATO, and the World Economic Forum, and hot off the press, Alexandria was just accepted into Harvard University and will be attending this fall. And next is Faviana Rodriguez. She is an interdisciplinary artist, cultural strategist, and entrepreneur based in Oakland. Through her poignant speeches, she has inspired audiences around the world, including those at the United Nations Climate Summit, Sundance Film Festival, the Smithsonian, and Google. Faviana is regarded as one of the leading thinkers uniting art, culture, and social impact. As president and co-founder of the Center for Cultural Power, an organization igniting change at the intersection of art and social justice, 
She has been instrumental in building a cultural strategy ecosystem that supports BIPOC artists in the U.S. Welcome, Fabiana. Thank you. And now, what you've all been waiting for, Damien, over to you. Thank you so much. And how appropriate is it that just outside this building, we're in the middle of an atmospheric river? Uh, and I blame you, Lily. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, in 2017, they sent me to Houston to cover Hurricane Harvey, and there were floods every day in different neighborhoods. The levees were breaking. I was there for a week. Um, it was sad. I got back home. The next week, there was a huge earthquake in Mexico City. Buildings collapsed. Dozens of people died. I went there for a week uh, right after uh, and did that. I came back, and as soon as I got back, the fires broke out, broke out in, in Napa County. So I thought fire, earthquake, floods, all we need is pestilence now and the apocalypse is here. What happened in 2020? We had a pestilence. Um, so what would Frida say to what happened in 2017 and what's been happening in this world? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I started writing the book in 2016 and uh, right before Hurricane Maria. And so I have had a similar experience of watching these disasters unfold in at the same time as, as writing this story um, and feeling this sort of near future get so much closer. Um, and so I think Frida would be really freaked out. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, I think each of the characters in the book, the light pirate, um, are reacting in really different ways to the reality that is unfolding all around us. And um, Frida's way of interacting with that and dealing with that is um, fear forward. Uh, you know, so I think that she would be really suffering to experience all of this. And Frida would probably has a uh, climate anxiety. Uh, and that's where you come in, uh, Heather. Talk about climate anxiety and how real it is. Uh, and does it make it worse when you see some folks in this world don't believe that we're in crisis? Such a good question, Damien. Thank you for that. And I think it's really interesting that Lily is talking about, a fiction writer, talking about the realities we're experiencing. And that shows the power of storytelling for this narrative. But the reality is, is that climate anxiety is a, it's a new term. It was defined by the American Psychological Association in 2017 as the chronic fear of environmental doom. And in 2021, the Oxford English Dictionary included it for the first time, and it means unease or apprehension about the climate and the future based on our human activity. Uh, young people are really worried. There was a recent survey of 10,000 young people ages 16 through 25. 47% said climate anxiety interfered with their daily life. One in four, one in four do not want to have children of their own because they're so worried about the future we're inheriting. So does it, your, your second part of your question was like, is it hard when people don't believe that climate change is real? The answer is yes. And it's really hard for young people. The vast majority of young people, this is their number one political issue. It's um, 
it's intersectional. They understand that it's tied to racial justice, economic justice, intergenerational justice. And I feel like there's a very much a call to action intergenerationally for baby boomers, for Gen Xers like me, and for millennials to create space for Gen Z and Gen Alpha to be heard. And not for us to just say, you give us hope. Because my teenagers are sick and tired of being called the hope. They basically, the reason I started researching this issue is really a dinner table conversation with them. Even though I've done this, this is my career, 25 years of environmental policy. They just said to me, we feel all alone in climate action. What are you doing? And I thought if someone like me who worked for Al Gore, obviously the campaign in 2000 did not work out the way I wanted, <laughs> but because um, who majored in environmental science, conservation biology, did environmental law, worked on the Hill, da, 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 da. If my kids felt alone in climate action, what was happening around other dinner tables? And leads me to Alexandria. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for how we are turning over this world to your generation. Um, how real is that fear? Um, but in reading your manuscript, you you haven't given up hope. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think, first of all, um, there are a lot of young people who are getting involved in climate activism because they're seeing climate change firsthand. And so I think that the experiences that young people are having firsthand with the way that we are seeing climate fuel disasters is really what is making them decide to get involved and take action. And so, for example, I ended up getting involved in climate activism after seeing the California wildfires. And so I'm originally from Northern California, but in 2018, I was living in New York City. And I still went back and forth quite a bit because I had family here. And I was in Northern California visiting my family in my hometown when the campfire in Paradise, California happened. And at the time, that was California's worst wildfire. I ended up, um, I have asthma, and so it was a very scary experience with all the smoke seeping into my home. I had to roll up wet towels, put them under windows and doors to keep the smoke from coming in. And that was just a very big, just climate change was directly in my face. And so after getting back to New York City from that trip, I started to research and I started to see the connection between climate change and California's wildfires. And that's what's happening with a lot of young people is they're seeing the way that their community is being affected firsthand and it's making them want to take action. And so the reason why young people are becoming activists is because we are dealing with that climate anxiety and eco grief. But we're finding that taking action is one of the best ways to remedy that anxiety. I was in Santa Rosa covering the fire and I remember the whole hill lit up and that was gone. And then for a quarter of a mile, it was fine. Those houses were clear. And then a couple of buildings over here were gone. And like, what is happening? Uh, it's a phenomenon that I think we're having a hard time explaining. Um, culturally, um, how, how, how is this happening culturally? Because I know that we've done reports on the 680, 280, 101 overpass, and the folks who live beneath it are suffering from asthma. Uh, and who are those folks? There are the folks who are less to do. Culturally, how how is this yeah. disparity happening? Yeah, well, I think, you know, for a long time when we think about climate change, we've thought about polar bears or melting glaciers, and we don't necessarily understand the root causes, which is, of course, the burning of fossil fuels, animal agriculture. What's also a big problem is that in television and film, you know, the things we're watching on TV, when we're watching our favorite TV shows, less than 2.8% of all scripted TV and film even mentions climate. 
And so we are not seeing the reality of our planet that's burning presented back to us. It's not in pop culture. And so as a result, you know, culture shapes our imagination. Um, I believe that cultural change precedes political change. And so we can't have policy change until we first have a shift in our imagination. We begin to imagine and see what a shift to clean energy looks like. We begin to question how much we're consuming and we heal our relationship to nature. But we need culture to do that. We need music, film, TV, plays, books, children's books. And that has not been the case. And so I believe that part of the failures that we've seen on the political end is because we have not had um, a culture that engages everyone. Uh, on the contrary, just a, a few years ago, or I think, yeah, a few years ago, for the first time you saw a major show, a major film, uh, Don't Look Up, right? You know, Don't Look Up was one of the first times that a climate narrative actually grew so many audiences. And yet the majority of the characters we saw in that film were white. Well, what we know for a fact, those who are most impacted by climate change are um, Black, Indigenous, Latino. I mean, I grew up next to an 880 freeway that just two miles up from my neighborhood, um, the mostly white neighbors who lived by the 580 organized so that the trucks wouldn't go through their hood. So they go through my neighborhood. And as a result, the asthma rates are very high. We need the stories of those who are most impacted in order for us to really feel Because as human beings, neuroscience shows us that we are more likely to act if our emotions are engaged, if we feel it. If you get the rational information, the data, that's, that doesn't move people. And so in, in my work, I look at what, how are we using all our storytelling tools to move people? Because it's possible. It's how we want. We, we want gay marriage because Ellen was on TV, because Will and Grace was on TV. That's how gay marriage got legalized. It took 15 years. But you shift consciousness by presenting another way. Uh, and so in the article, excuse me, in the essay in All We Can Save, I talk about that our climate movement needs more artists, writers, musicians. Um, I'm really happy that I just came back from D.C. And yesterday, the National Endowment for the Arts announced a historic partnership with the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. This has never been done before. And this is the kind of federal policy we need. Right. We need to get artists to work on showing us the solutions because Hollywood is just not moving fast enough. And so we have to change hearts and minds now. So you don't think that the only reason the trucks aren't allowed on 580 is because of the weight of the trucks. There's more to it than that. Oh, of course. It is a it's called environmental racism. And, you know, at the core of climate change, look, oil doesn't extract itself. Right. You need people to extract that oil. Who are those people going to be? Those those incinerators and those refineries have to go somewhere. Where are they going to go? They're going to go in Richmond. They're going to go in South Central L.A. They're going to go in Fresno. They're going to pollute the air. So it's a fact that people of color have been most impacted. Who's working in the slaughterhouses? It's immigrants. Who is working, picking the food that is destroying our soil? It's immigrants. It's Latinos. You know, before that, it was black people. And so we have to know. And it's, it's you know, it's facts. If you look at the Cal Enviro screen and you look at the pollution in East Oakland and then you go to Mill Valley, it is literally green. You see Mill Valley is green. The Fruitvale where I live is red. West Oakland is red. Right. 
canal is probably red. And, and so we have to understand that land use policies made it okay for people of color to live in the dirtiest places. And you cannot have an extractive economy without somebody suffering. And this is why we actually have to shift from an extractive economy to a regenerative economy where we value all people, that we don't sacrifice the kids in Flint, Michigan, right? We, we, we honor everyone and everyone's health. And that's what I think storytelling can do so powerfully. And that's why, you know, I love Chasing Ice. I love Chasing Coral. I love all these documentaries. But I, first thing I think is whose stories, whose stories are we elevating and who are we leaving behind? Thank you. You should write a book. <laughs> uh, Lily, uh, one major theme of The Light Pirate is humanity's turbulent relationship with nature and climate change. Now, Frida is paralyzed by the enormity of a collective decline she sees occurring all over the world. Kirby is determined to ignore it and to focus only on problems with immediate solutions. Phyllis uh, has given up on civilization and is instead preparing for the worst. How do you feel about these different perspectives and where do you lie with your personal beliefs? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think there's, I feel a little bit of all of them, to be honest. I mean, I, I, it's definitely a mixture um, and it felt kind of important to represent all of those sides of how it feels to be alive right now and to be facing this because as Fabiana pointed out, um, you know, facts are important politics are important, but feelings are really important too, um, perhaps, and that perhaps needs to come first if we're, you know, try, trying to craft a solution here. So um, for me, I quite honestly am a little bit of a cynic, you know, like I find it difficult to feel hopeful. Um, but that's why I do the work that I do. That's why I write these stories, because I think it's important to confront that. I would rather be clear-eyed and honest about the grief and doom that I feel than to pretend it's not there. You know what I mean? And so I think a lot of us feel this way and are trying to feel anything else, right? And so I think that there is power in all of us looking at this and the more eyes that are looking, the more powerful it becomes. So I don't feel super hopeful, but I think there's space for that, too. Um, and Heather, uh, in One Green Thing, you talk about personality types impacting uh, behavior. How does a person's personality type uh, factor into the climate change movement? Such a great question. I think environmentalists like me often start the conversation with folks about the what, do this, not that right? You should choose this type of sneaker. You Let's go for EVs. You should be lobbying for this bill. Uh, you need to do this action. Instead of asking the fundamental question of who are you, we need to start the conversation with the who. Mm -hmm. Who are you? What are your strengths? What are your interests? What are your talents? And what do you want your personal legacy to be? What type of ancestor do you want to be? And that I realized um, from talking to to friends, talking to my two teenagers who like really keep me 
Like they're not impressed with anything I do. I just want to be very, like very clear, like, oh, great. You wrote a book. Wonderful, mom. We're real proud of you. But like, so they just keep me so grounded um, in how they feel about this future. Uh, I knew I needed to create a way for more people to see themselves in the climate movement. You don't need a PhD, although I know there's lots of people with PhDs in this audience. You don't need a PhD to be part of this movement. You don't have to be a you know, 18-year-old who's spoken in front of the United Nations to be part of this movement. You don't have to be a Good Morning America book selection, or you don't have to be a phenomenal artist who's changed hearts and minds all over the world. You can be, you know, a, like my favorite DC term for my DC days, real people. We're going to get real people to this event. You can be a real, like, Anyone, everyone, everyone is welcome. Everyone is needed. This is the biggest challenge of our time. We all have a unique role to play. And my calling is to help people find theirs. So through this assessment, it's kind of like Enneagram or Strength Finders, um, Myers-Briggs. It's just a simple idea for you to take an inventory of your talents. And then I match you to this daily practice of sustainability. What Alexandra was saying is action helps deal with the anxiety. You do one thing each day to do what Faviana was saying all of us are cultural change agents. Mm -hmm. All of us. Obviously, the incredible artists and storytellers can reach more people, but all of us in our families, in our communities, we are cultural change agents. And if we don't start acting, if we don't start driving that cultural change where we live, I live in Montana, so I, it's challenging, certainly, uh, with the current administration that we have at the state level. If we don't move um, in our communities, then we can't get these national policies to work. It's not enough to have the policy not enough to have the collaboration, although it's amazing with EPA and the National Endowment of the Arts. If we don't have people applying for the grants, if we don't have people saying, Fabiana, this, you need to do this, or, you know, you need, you know, student here, you need to do this, it will not work. And so that's the person that I can go into the details, but I encourage you to go into the book. There's all these, I have seven different archetypes. We all have a different role to play. You don't have to be a protester if that's not what you're comfortable in. If you are organized, because we need you, you know, it, but you can, if and you don't have to be a, an expert in clean energy policy, although incredible opportunities there. You can be an influencer. You can be, there's a profile I have that's a sage. And for those of you know who inter, know Interfaith Power and Light, Reverend Sally Bingham, I got to see today who basically realized that there was a missing conversation 20 years ago in the faith community to talk about how do we care for our earth? How do we care for God's creation? So incredible opportunities for you to get involved. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And it's, it's amazing how it's the young people who get it. Uh, you'll see second grade science projects and their science project is about recycling, how we're destroying the earth. They get it. How come we don't? Um, and um, it's it's almost uh, Friday. Uh, Alexander, does that mean it's strike Friday still for you? And what does that mean? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so when I got involved in the climate movement uh, when I was 13 back in uh, 2018, the way that I first got involved was I ended up joining the Fridays for Future movement and Greta Thunberg. And in December of 2018, I made a sign that said school strike for climate and COP24, because uh, that was the co first COP that really got the attention of the youth when Greta Thunberg spoke for the first time in Poland. And it was one of the first times I ever saw failure on the international level with climate change, too. And so I made those two signs and I got on the New York City one train, went all the way down to um, where the United Nations was. And I ended up going and striking in front of the United Nations headquarters on Friday. And I ended up striking every single Friday in solidarity with the Fridays for Future movement for over 52 weeks in a row. 
And so once I got involved, I ended up connecting with the international climate strike movement and organized those climate strikes we saw all throughout 2019. And so, for example, in New York City, I organized for September 20th, which was one of the largest global climate strike days that um, the movement had ever organized. And in New York City, we had 315,000 people marching through the financial district. And um, it was right when the global leaders were in New York City for the New York City um, Climate Summit as well. And so it was just a it was a very impactful moment because there was so much momentum where young people really saw a way that they could get involved. It felt accessible because all you were doing is you were showing up with your friends, your community at this at this one central location, making your voice heard. And it felt very accessible for people to get involved. And in New York City, we also tried to make it easy for young people to participate because, for example, for the September 20th climate strike, we ended up getting young people um, excused used absences for that day too, because a lot of young people didn't have the opportunity to strike in New York City. And we wanted to make it so where young people, no matter what schools they came from, where they were in the city, they were able to participate. And But since then, the climate movement, young people, we've had to really continue to reinvent the ways we take action. And so we got a lot of momentum in 2019 with the global climate strikes. But since then, we've seen that they did have a huge impact. We were able to get global attention from our world leaders. But in order to get climate action, we found that we have to constantly reinvent the way we take action in order to constantly get attention and put pressure on our world leaders. And so even though now some of us might not be climate striking every Friday um, and, you know, doing those type of protests, we're still finding ways to take action and make our voices heard on the streets. You see how it's the young people who get it? Uh... <laughs> Mm-hmm. quite evident out here. Uh, Fabiana, is it safe to say that you can be a, a cultural and environmental activist all in one? Same of course. Time? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think culture is everything. Culture is how we see the world, how we see each other, and it shapes our relationship to nature. And we live in a dominant culture on this planet that tells us it's okay to extract from nature and violate nature and take and take and take. It's called the extractive economy. And we extract from nature, we extract from animals. And we have to be clear that a big cause of the climate crisis is, is, is factory farming, is our dependence on the amount of animals that we're eating and the deforestation that has to happen to sustain that. And of course, number one, fossil fuels. Uh, and so all of these are things in our culture. So for example, when, when I visited the Amazon for the first time last year, uh, I went to the Brazil side of the Amazon um, some of the most deforestation is happening by cattle ranching. And guess who's consuming that? Um, mostly in Brazil, eating that meat is a huge part of their culture. And so imagine if we can shift culture and shift how we eat, how we consume, get away from the idea that we all need a car or we need a car that is running on oil and we instead shift to other ways of imagining how we move ourselves. And so culture is at the heart of all our behaviors. And the power of culture is through culture, you can transmit values. And so we need the values around stewardship, not extraction, stewardship of our planet, which is really an indigenous value, right? So many indigenous communities don't own the planet, they steward. Uh, And so for me, I think that at the heart of how we think about environmentalism is our values. And I love what you said is our values, not just of what kind of planet do we want to leave for the next seven generations, but also 
what is our responsibility to life on earth? To so many, you know, I don't know if your children will ever see if you decide to have children. I don't, I, you know, I don't have children. So not all of us, you know, have, have children. But your next generation may not even know what an elephant is or a tiger, right? Or a rhinoceros. And that to me is, is devastating. And so I think we as human beings, we, we cannot sustain this, uh, the destruction of life. We have to, we, we should protect life in the oceans, in the forests, right? And not just human life, all species. We, and, and we need a cultural shift for us to imagine that. Uh, I grew up in, in a neighborhood that was all, all cement, hardly any trees. And when we think about the heat waves coming, that's a big problem. What made it okay for there to be such a separation of nature, right? How do I show other people in urban environments how to reconnect to nature so that we love nature so much that we will defend it and that we will challenge the most powerful corporations in the world who are making a lot of money off the destruction of our planet. And what I really love about the young people is they're not afraid to go up to the fossil fuel executives and say, you are lying and you're immoral. And I think it's important to know that we as individuals, we can take a lot of action but the majority of emissions are coming from the fossil fuel companies. And if we can shut down the fossil fuel industry, if we can make it so that oil is an ugly thing of the past, we're going to create shift. And so I want to just remind that while we are powerful as individuals, what it takes to take down that industry, because we were getting there and then Ukraine happened. And then all of a sudden you had a whole reversal, right? And then you have, you know, with the IRA, with the Inflation Reduction Act, it was young people getting in a Democrat's face, Joe Manchin, blocking his yacht, waking up at six in the morning and saying, you traitor, you have to make sure and pass laws. And so I think we need courage. And I think that culture is a way for us to love our planet so much that we will be willing to do things to confront very, very powerful entities. It's uh, safe to say that everyone here uh, agrees with everything that, that y'all have written, but, but how can they get active, uh, Lily, when we're, we're working maybe two jobs, uh, driving our kids from one sport uh, uh, to practice in the in, in next one? How, how, how is it that we individually can get involved and, and create that change that we need? Um, that's a good question that feels so above my pay grade. That's <laughs> your, your lane. But, um, I mean, I think what you were saying earlier is so, so perfect that we all have something different to offer and what I can do doesn't look the same as what you can do. Um, but I mean, the fact is all of the problems that we see that we find ourselves facing, we created together. And so it only makes sense that a solution has to be created in a similar way. Like we all have to be on board um, to undo all of these errors we have um, allowed to continue for so long. So I really don't think it's a, it's not a one size fits all. It's, um, and I don't know what's right for you, right? All I know is what works for me, which is this very feeling-based, narrative-based, like, um, I am overwhelmed by 
how awful all of this feels. What can I do? I can tell a story about it and I can show you that this is a real feeling that we're all facing and you're not alone and I'm not alone and we all feel this. And so that's what I can do. But I don't know what what your lane is, you know, but that's part of, I think, Mm -hmm. what's so beautiful about all of the work up here on this stage. So Heather, you want to? Yeah. So again, this is why I created this assessment and this idea of, let's say you're not a beacon like Faviana and Alexandra who protesting, having that courage to say to anyone, this is the right path. This is the wrong path. That is not how everybody can show up. Everyone has a different comfort level. So if you're an influencer, one of the actions you can do is say, hey, read, read the light pirate. I really want you to think about this. It's such a thought-provoking, beautiful book. That is an important gesture, changing how people think, changing how people feel about the environment. It could be looking at the Inflation Reduction Act and seeing, oh my gosh, there's an EV rebate. You know, there's a rebate. There's all these like tangible things I can get. You know, it's transition my gas stove to an induction stove and get tax credit for it. There are all these little teeny actions you can take. And so I I have a like a 21-day Kickstarter plan. It's like basically One Green Thing is a self-help book for environmental action. <laughs> it is. It's a self-help book. So you can find out what the path is that works for you. And one of the things I want to um, just draw from what Fabiana talked about, and, and of course, everyone here about the importance of storytelling, I just was in a conversation yesterday about shifting the narrative to truth-telling. And I think in 2024, with this election, the truth telling is going to become more and more important. And I feel like so much of what librarians do is telling us fact-based history, helping us understand what the truth is. Artists, even writers of fiction, young people, the art, that incredible visual art that you do, it it is a way for us to understand truth. So it's storytelling, but also the truth. And then just, you know, I'm from Tennessee. I live in Montana. Um, just this idea of how do we do with deal with climate denial. And I, I actually start all of my conversations. And if any of you come to the work, some of the workshops I'll be hosting in the libraries, I start the conversation with personal legacy and this idea of an ancestor. And I've asked people in North Carolina and Tennessee and in West Virginia, you know, do you want your grandchildren working in the coal, coal mines? Is that what you envision for them? There's nothing wrong with coal. Obviously, it built the country, but is that actually what you want? Is that really part of your identity and what you want the future identity? Do you want the strip mining? Do you want that visual? Do you want all these freeways everywhere in the neighborhood that you grew up? Do you want concrete, a concrete jungle? Having those conversations is a way to kind of break through that rancor and talking about identity, talking about legacy, and then talking about policy and politics. I think that's important. Can you change uh, denialism, uh, once those who are bent on their beliefs, is there a way to change or that's just... Oh, great question. I'm sure other people have thoughts on this, but I'm going to say no. And I actually don't even bother. I don't bother because the reality is 72% of Americans, the vast majority, believe that climate change is real. They understand the science. We tend to underestimate Yale Communications, um, the program on climate change communications actually did a poll. We underestimate by five to one who believes in climate change. We think we're in the minority of beliefs in America when actually we're in the vast majority. Mm -hmm. I don't waste my time with that, but I do. One of the things, and I'll I'll say it again, is I do encourage people who are climate deniers. I just say it doesn't even matter. I say it doesn't even matter. What is, what's the harm? Like, oh my gosh, what if we build a world with clean energy, with equity at the center, and we have clean air for all? Wow. Like, what is the harm? 
let's go for it. <laughs> is there hope for your generation? Do you, does your generation feel like there is hope if we do something now? Or is it so far gone that it's going to take more than your generation? Well, I think that one thing that my generation really does is we constantly create hope. Um, I think right now there a lot of young people feel very burnt out because of everything that's going on in our society, because of all of the work that we have done over the past couple of years. We feel very tired. Um, and of course, that makes us feel very hopeless. But I think one thing that makes, I mean, young people so powerful is the fact that we're really all in this together. There's a big sense of community within the youth climate movement and my peers when it comes to just like the way that all of us are feeling. And so I think that when a lot of young people feel very um, burnt out, depressed, hopeless, it's really our relationships with each other that is the thing that keeps us going and the sense of community we have with each other when we work together. And so right now, one thing we're talking a lot about within um you know, the spaces I'm in with young people is a lot about the upcoming elections, too, because a lot of young people feel so hopeless. And how can my voice and my vote even have um, an impact in this? And so, for example, for me, this will be the first time I'm ever voting. And um, yeah, I'm not looking forward to it in certain ways, but I am still going to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of young people, one of the things that we're doing is we're just trying to make sure that all of our voices, we're being there for each other, we're turning out because the youth can have a huge say when we all band together. And so we're constantly creating hope for each other and um, making the space to find hope. Interesting. Um, I interviewed uh, astronaut uh, Jose Hernandez. He flew on Discovery. And he said that when he went out of the Earth's atmosphere, two things. He became an immigration rights activist because he saw the planet with no borders wow. and how beautiful that looked yes. from space. He also saw how thin the atmosphere was and how scary that became, uh, that visual was for him because he described it as um, this thin. Yet, Fabiana, when we look at the polls, uh, if we believe the polls right now, it's it's immigration, it's the economy, it's uh, this and that. Climate doesn't even rate. That's How a big failure of a mistake of, is that? That's a failure of culture. That's that's We were just talking about this at the NEA. It's a failure of culture because if you even think about it, so culture is often used uh, against our values. And so the previous administration used culture to mobilize anti-immigrant sentiment, to mobilize Islamophobia, to... Um, bring back very old ideas about gender. So culture moves fast, and we are in an age of culture war. And the reason that those things are, number one, immigration reproductive access is also because there's been a culture of conversation and a culture of, of, of division. I really love what you brought up about um, the astronaut because the Earth doesn't have borders. Borders are man-made. And power of culture is that we don't have to stick to what's just politically feasible. We can imagine a future that is not yet here. We can imagine what it's like to be in a world with clean energy, right? And th this is why we need the arts. We need to give ourselves the courage and the boldness to understand that there is another way forward, and we need to normalize that way. And so you're right. Climate is not necessarily what's going to drive people to the polls. It's It's um, and that actually is exactly what our work is, is that 
we have to, I mean, for me, the environment is everything. Like it's related to what we eat. Um, the border is, climate migration is already here, right? Climate migration is our future. That border is destroying the ecology of the Southwest region. The Southwest region is also ground zero for the heat waves, as we hear from Arizona. So you can't talk about immigration policy without talking about what's happening to the environment. People are leaving because they have, they're not able to grow food because of um, uh, environmental uh, devastation. And so I always believe that our, our work, and this is we, why we need a culture shift on climate to remind people that these things are all connected. Uh, and in reality, you know, the future is about intersectionality. It is not, we can't live in silos. We can't say, I'm a climate activist. I'm a gender justice activist because they are all connected. And it's really about our values for a future world, which is for me, my values is I want to live in a world where all human beings can thrive in harmony with nature. So what is it going to take to get there? That means everyone has access to health care. That means people have bodily autonomy. It means that people get clean air. And I love what you said about truth telling, you know, and that and, and this is also why so much of our work in culture is actually to fight misinformation. Librarians are on the front line of truth telling. This is why you have a lot of states passing laws to make sure those kids are not reading certain books because knowledge is very powerful. Knowledge transforms culture. And so I think our, our work is to move away from silos and move towards values and not make it about a climate issue or, you know, a, a, a gender issue, but instead say, hey, we all, we all want to thrive. Like, how do we move towards that um, and, and, and do it in a way that's more holistic? Maybe it's the old uh, St. Thomas approach. Uh, take the denialists up in space so they can see for themselves how thin we've made uh, yeah. this atmosphere. Um, anybody else want to add something before we go into the audience questions? Well, I mean, I wanted to kind of pick up what you were talking about with the denialists. And um, I think it's so interesting. Like when I look out at the world, I think that we are all, in fact, on the same page about feeling very afraid, very anxious and full of grief. We just don't agree on why we're feeling that way. And there's something about that unity underneath all of the disagreements that we have with each other that is inspiring to me, um, that is like a tiny bit hopeful for me. Because I think, and this goes back to the idea of culture having to come first. Like if if we can put the feelings first and go into understanding why this experience is so collective, then, you know, the science can follow, the politics can follow. And so I, I you know, I, I both agree with you, like, what can you really do in the face of denialism? And also, I think there's something there, right? Like, I think there is some, maybe this is why art and fiction and other things have to get in there first. But um, I don't know. I think that I think that everyone's heart is a little bit broken. Mm -hmm. And I think that broken hearts need to be witnessed in order to heal. And so that's kind of what we're all here to <laughs> May I respond? Yes. Okay, Lily, yes. 
Broken hearts need to be witnessed to heal. That is so beautiful. And just like a gut punch, you're in the right field, my friends, uh, for sure. What I, um, just reading The Light Pirate and being here when you brought my inhaler out, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, reading Emily, too, um, is compassion. Mm -hmm. Uh, What you're really talking in your book and like meeting you, I know that that what I just heard, like compassion needs to be at the center. It's also about equity, intergenerational, racial, economic. It's 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 compassion. And so I do have compassion for the climate deniers. I think from someone from like the national environmental NGO perspective, we've spent so much time trying to deal with a small minority of people who don't actually agree with us. We need to bring people in. And I know a lot of people who want to get involved, but frankly, are afraid of doing it wrong. They're afraid of doing sustainability wrong. They're afraid of being judged. They're like, oh, I did this thing. I got this Stanley Cup and I just saw Consumer Reports says there's lead in it, you know, or, oh, my gosh, you know, I, I made this switch. And then it turns out these things aren't really compostable unless you live in San Francisco and there you have access to a metropolitan you know, industrial composting machine. And so um, people get afraid and then get discouraged. And I think that that's really, I think what I hear you saying really is we need to be compassionate. And we've lost a lot of that in our political discourse for sure. Um, But that's, I think, first and foremost, what kind of the through line for all of this. And one of the things I always say to people, including people who are not, I'm not really sure about climate change, which actually I do hear more often than you would think. Uh, you would think people would be afraid to have that conversation with me. They're not. Um, but but I, I say, ask the young people in your life what they think about the future we're leaving them. And even though politically, climate may not be number one for baby boomers and for Gen Xers, it is absolutely for Gen Z. Yes. That and gun violence. I mean, yep. that, I mean, those are the two big issues, but again, it's intersectional. So I think that um, more and more sustainability is the future. The economy and sustainability is about to explode. Young people want to be part of the solution and it's up for us to help. And I've seen the compassion. compassion. I've seen the second graders do it to their family um, unit. Uh, They'll change the way the family operates because the second grader learns something in science that what they're doing is wrong. Absolutely. So it's that second grader who makes that change. Uh, This question from the audience is for Lily. Mm -hmm. It says, uh, what is the significance of the bioluminescence in the book? And why did you call the book The Light Pirate? Specifically, why a pirate? Sure. Um, So the bioluminescence in the book. uh, So uh, I don't know how many of you have read it, um, but um, I got a little wave. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So at the center of the book is a family, a, a father and a son who are linemen. And I don't know, a lot of people often don't know what linemen are. Um, so I'll just, they're electricity workers. They work on the lines. Um, and so that is sort of where the book starts. Um, and as this environment is unraveling and as life in this place is becoming more and more tenuous, this work and this infrastructure also begins to crumble. Um, and so... As Wanda, the um, protagonist of the book, grows up, she starts to develop this um, relationship with a bioluminescence um, in her own environment. And so I wanted to take that through line of the light that we make as humans and, and bring it back into the light that was already here before us and to sort of play with those different modalities of 
of rightness. Um, it also, I think the book really needed some levity at a certain point. And so that was part of my thought process around like, how can I bring in something that feels a little bit ethereal and a little bit magical in the face of all of this horror? Um, and then in terms of the title, I answer, maybe I answered the light half. Um, but in terms of the word pirate, I was really interested in um, pirating electricity and bringing in that idea, but also um, I, well, also it just sounds cool first and foremost, <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest, but I, I was really attracted to that word because it is such a kind of vicious word. It's kind of a negative word and to pair it with something so beautiful, I think spoke to Wanda's evolution as someone who is full of compassion and full of brightness and also must survive, right? Which isn't always beautiful and isn't always easy. And um, she had to persevere in the face and like make some really moral, questionably moral decisions. Um, and so kind of putting those two words together felt like a really, a really good title for the story. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm a lot smarter than I was 45 minutes ago just by sitting here. This is great. Uh, this next question is for uh, Alexandria. Do you ever experience burnout from your activism or frustration about inaction when you are working so hard? If so, how do you fight that and bounce back? Yeah, well, of course. I mean, I've been doing this for five years now. And I think that really for me, I have definitely gone through all the different phases of burnout. And even just balancing my activism, which with school has also been very interesting. So, for example, like last year during my junior year of high school, I, my organization Earth Uprising, we ended up bringing a delegation of 25 youth from all around the world to um, COP in Egypt. And so I would do the organizing for those calls either like at 6 a.m. before I had to go to school or in between during my free period and just like trying to balance school, but also with activism. And it's so important to focus on activism because it's like, why go to school if we're not going to have a future? Like we're studying for this future that is going to be vastly different than we're being taught in the classroom. And so it's this very interesting kind of um, contrast. And so I'll have to tell my teachers like, sorry, I have to miss class because I'm organizing for this or I have this Zoom panel or something. And and it's almost like I'm justifying why I'm being an activist within the classroom. And so, but then it goes back to just the people and community and friends I've made through activism are really the reason why I haven't fully burnt out because I have this network of young people from all around the world and these friends that I've made through it are really the reasons why it's why I continue to do activism, even if I'm burnt out. Um, and so I think that it's just at the core of it. It's those relationships that keep me going. So congrats on on Harvard. What what do you envision? Where will you be? Um, I'm going to focus on English, which I think is very fitting for this panel, because I think that stories are one of the best ways to get people involved in activism. And so I talk a lot about climate stories and why it's so important for people to find their own climate story, because 
once you also share that with others, people really connect on more of what we've been talking about. They connect emotionally with with their feelings. And so once people see how others are being impacted by climate change, too, that really makes them understand the depth of what's going on. And so I think that climate literacy, climate education and climate stories are so powerful and the written word can do so much. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. Uh, next question is for Fabiana. Uh, how can we use art to grieve and or heal from the loss of the natural environments we grow up in? Oh, that's a great question because that's that's what I do with my art. So, for example, I just did a project at the Presidio National Park at the new Tunnel Tops. And um, we wanted to bring color to that park and make it a place that was more inclusive. And I decided to look at what are all the species that used to roam San Francisco and where did they go? What happened to the grizzly bear? What happened to the elk? What happened to the mountain lion? Although mountain lions are now returning, the coyote is also returning. Uh, and I did these huge art pieces of the animals throughout the park, and you would see children jump on them, and they would say, what's that? And then they'd go to the field center, and the field center would say, this is the grizzly bear. The grizzly bear is not here anymore because they were hunted to extinction, right? And talk about, this is what I mean, the extractive economy is about just profit, profit, greed, and the violation of life. Their pelts were taken, um, and all those, uh, that wealth got taken to another continent, just like the otters who used to be all throughout our uh, bay that the, the Russians came, set up a fort, and the otters are gone. They're just now returning. And so through art, I love what you said. The written word is powerful. The image is very powerful, right? When you see something, when you told, shared the story of the astronaut, you know, it was in 1969 when they took the photo of the earth. Imagine that 1969, we got a whole nother perspective of our home in that photo that changed and that is now the symbol of the environmental movement. I love that, that an image can just transform you. And so you can think about art, like what have we lost? How do we bring that back, right? How do we honor the spirit of the creatures who are no longer, who I, I think every 12 minutes or something, we lose so much wildlife. Every 12 minutes we, we lose. And I think, we, you know, we are in the... Um, what is the, I forgot the name of it. In, Sixth extinction. Yeah, we, we are in, in the fastest era of losing species on this planet. How do we make that visible? How do we show that through art? Make a big public art piece, make an altar. Talk about what we're losing, right? And, and, and grieve it. I think the other power about art that's very healing is that art is a safe place for us to talk about our emotions. Think about open mics, right? Singing places where people can um, speak out, write poetry. And that's an opportunity to not just, you don't need to be in data. You can be in your feelings. And in being in your feelings and in creating something visual that honors the past, you know, I just did an art piece also about the redwoods. And I began to research how much redwoods were cut down, right? Just like wiped out. Um, the redwoods are the tallest trees in the world. The way they hold themselves up is through their root system. They don't have tap roots. They, their roots go across. It's such a great symbol for us as humans. And they're also wonderful carbon sequestrators. And so I made art pieces about the redwoods so that we could understand 
the history and we will never repeat that history, right? And this this applies to so many things that the image, um, what we see transforms our mind. It allows us to grieve and it also shows us what's possible. So let's also use art to show where we're going, right? I would love, one of my favorite films done by Oakland filmmaker Ryan Coogler was Black Panther. And I loved Wakanda. <laughs> and I told uh, Ryan, I said, where were the solar panels on Wakanda? <laughs> where were the solar panels? Like everything was great, but we needed those solar panels. <laughs> so I want to see solar panels everywhere. That's that the sun. So many of our cultures have admired the sun. The sun is such a source of power. We don't need to disrupt, as indigenous people said during Standing Rock, we don't need to disrupt the over 500 fossils that are under the ground. We have to keep it in the ground and we can harness the power. But let's use culture to do that. Let's show how cool it is to get power from the sun and no longer use the dirty energy that's underneath. Well put. Uh, This question is for Heather. Um, Do you expect this kind of we talked about this? Do you expect climate change to be a big campaign issue? We mentioned how it's not really rating high. Uh, in the polls, and how would you advise the candidates uh, to respond to the voters' concerns on this issue? Uh, I think it absolutely will be an issue in the election because of young people. The youth vote were the that was the deciding sec- uh, sector in 2022. I think it will be huge for one party. Another party may not mention it as much, although to their peril, uh, for their youth vote. Uh, I do think it'll come up. The Inflation Reduction Act that Faviano was talking about is the biggest piece of climate environmental legislation ever. More than $500 billion worth of investments in clean energy technology and consumer rebates and environmental education. So much opportunity that you can't ignore it if you're running a business. You can't ignore it if you're running a university. There's so many opportunities there. So it will be a big issue. Um, I think young people are going to be a challenge um, for the Democratic Party because of foreign policy. And foreign policy is going to take center stage, and it's very complicated. Um, And and I think that that's why climate has to be front and center for for them. Okay. And uh, Lily, do you think we need to be scared straight, or are we past that point? Should should we have been scared straight about where we're headed a long time? (laughs) Um, I don't know. <laughs> I feel scared straight. Um, do you? I mean, like, I think it's really about tonight. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think it's a it's less about the individual and more about have we tipped that ratio yet? You know, like, um, and I think the I think the more the more of us that that get there, the 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 more solution oriented all of this work will become but i think getting to that tipping point is about art and storytelling and young people and and finding your path you know i think it's interesting the astronaut um the astronaut experience that, that you were referring in referencing is um, called the overview effect. And lots of astronauts have written about it in their memoirs. And I think that that idea, the overview effect and this um, really broad view is so important. 
But then we have to zoom in, right, and do the tiny things, the daily things. And you can't have one without the other. So I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but uh, it's all it's all going to have to fit together some way or another. And um, we're certainly not there yet. So I guess no is the shorter mm. answer. <laughs> we have just a few more minutes left. I'm going to let you uh, all have a, a final say if you'd like. I've asked all the questions. What would you like us to go home with tonight? We'll start with you, Heather. I would say start, I would like for you to go home and make sure you're talking to the young people that you love about how they feel. Let them know that they're not alone. Make a commitment. You're here tonight. So obviously you've made a commitment to work with them to create a better future. And the second thing I would say is really what Faviana was saying. It's time for us to start shifting the narrative. We all get the apocalyptic vision. Yeah. Um, we understand what's at stake. Not everybody does, but people in this room do. What if we are able to create that regenerative future? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What if we changed all the sustainable development goals? What if we automatically in 2030 eliminated poverty, had clean water for all, gender equity for all? What does it look like? What does it feel like? We need to start having that conversation because we can build something beautiful that our future loved ones will thank us for. Yep. Lily? Um, I think that if this conversation has made you feel bummed, that you should go home and feel bummed and just let that be okay. I I am the little rain cloud wherever I go, but that's okay because these guys are have more <laughs> solutions in mind than I do. But I really do think that this is an important piece of the puzzle is like making space for the grief yeah. that is part of this conversation. Yeah. And if we're not doing that, then we're skipping something really integral to getting to that solution. So what, Alexandria? Yeah, I think I'll end with, uh, in my essay in All We Can Save, it's called A Letter to Adults. And basically it is a call to action for intergenerational activism because now is the time for every everyone to get involved in activism, um, no matter what generation you're from. Because can you imagine how powerful a movement would be with um, young people, our parents and grandparents? All right. Aviana? Um, I would say to understand the power of, of the arts. We are a country that creates art that influences the world. Our music our poetry, our television shows get exported to the entire world. American culture is very powerful. And we have to be more diligent in thinking about how that culture is created and get active in that. And what that means, of course, is supporting the artists in your community. Um, across issues, it means, uh, you know, supporting the next generation of creatives. We need more folks to go into climate storytelling, especially in entertainment. We need to demand that our entertainment companies, the Netflix, the Amazons of the world, show us uh, stories about climate. So don't just support culture, become an informed cultural consumer and understand what you're watching, what you're listening to. Get curious about the artists who are um Creating and, 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 you know, what, what I love what you said about the cloud. We call that in the cultures, we call that doom and gloom. We say, okay, we, we gotta, we gotta chill out with the doom and gloom and move towards possibility, hope, futurism. 
Uh, we need all the emotions. You're right. We need the full spectrum. So, yeah, arts and culture are powerful. I think people think it's soft while politics is hard, but that's not at all. Culture eats strategy for breakfast, and we need a culture shift in order to um, achieve the world we want for the future. You know, and, and as young people, when we're growing up, we're inspired by adults and um, what they've accomplished and what they're teaching us. But Heather, how inspired are you by Alexandria? And oh, my goodness. Gender? Just yeah. incredible. And, and you know, I doing this work because of a dinner table conversation I had with my kids. I mentioned that, but I didn't tell you that my daughter wanted permission to leave school to participate in the 2019 climate strike at Bozeman <laughs> High. And my mom energy kicked in and I was like, you know what, there's um, there's a thunderstorm, sweetie, you know, why don't I pick you up and I'll drive you to the climate protest? And she was like, wait, what, you're going to drive me in our gas car to a climate price? What? And then she was like, what is going on? And then she had this generational discussion. Mom, where are the baby boomers? Where's Gen X? Where are millennials? You can't leave this on our shoulders. So I want to say, so inspired by you. You are not alone. We are here. We are here. This is not for you to solve alone. We are here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. Even though it's tough. Even though it's hard. (laughs) I'm not sure how we are on time. Are Are we good on time? We got time for one more? Couple more. Um, it you're going to take this activism to to Harvard, I would imagine, and, and beyond the walls of Harvard and, and wherever else it might take you. Definitely, I think that my activism will follow me wherever I go because it's hard not to be an activist in this day and time. Um, it and so, but I'm really interested in seeing how. I can um, get involved with different sectors of our society because, for example, I've seen just the way that I've worked a lot in the nonprofit space, but I've seen just how much of an impact businesses have on our society in the way that, um, for example, businesses can almost make change faster than our politics can because of the influence they have. And so I'm very interested to see in what way we can change the business sector to actually get change faster. And and we're talking less concrete, more earthly yeah, we need, you know, entire policy shifts in um, in, in my city in, in Oakland. Uh, our elected official, Nate Miley, is finally having hearings. You know, the, this law was passed in 1970 that allowed for the majority of trucks to go through the 880. Finally, we are having hearings about questioning that. And obviously, we're not going to have trucks go through the 580. They're not going to allow that. But, but it, it it's about a, switching to an electric. It takes, or, it takes yeah. a disaster on 880 for the trucks to be allowed to go on 580 because 880 is closed, right? It takes a disaster yeah. for something like that to happen. Yeah, and I, and I, I want to actually say something about uh, Alexandra because you, you said it so fast. You said I was at COP. I don't know if people know what COP is. This is the UN climate summit. Right. Okay. <laughs> this is, that's where I saw, um, I actually saw uh, uh, you and all your peers. And I have to say, it can be so frustrating because at these world gatherings, these mostly male politicians from all over the world, I think if women were running the UN climate summit, we would have solutions. But it's mostly <laughs> male politicians. <laughs> It's, and and they're not getting to. They're just every year. It's like, are you serious? This this 2023, you had oil executives in charge of the UN Climate Summit, and before that, you had more oil executives than countries represented. And it's in those spaces that young people take over. I mean, they they speak out. They talk to the press. They are taking over the conversation. And I remember seeing an article in the New York Times that it's the young women 
who are taking over the conversation. And even though the policy is lagging behind because policy always lags behind culture, I was so proud to see that it's young girls who are changing um, the climate conversation. So I would also say, just like support youth groups, donate to the youth groups. There's a lot. They're all over. The youth climate groups are all over. Find out, support them, and elevate them. And and I know that you call yourself a rainy cloud, a dark cloud, uh, Lily. But in 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 your talk, I I did hear frustration, but I I did sense some hope, and not a little hope. I I sense um, quite a bit of hope. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely there. Um, I <laughs> you don't believe me? No. Uh, but I but I think it's um. I don't know. I can only speak about my own experience. And my experience is that like, this is what I do is I take all of this doom that I feel and I spend years shaping it into something a little bit hopeful, but I don't want to write stories that have like a neat little bow on them. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's not, that doesn't feel honest to me. That doesn't feel like where we are. Um, where we are is so much darker. And so it's about, it's, it's a really arduous process of trying to unearth these veins of hope um, in all of this darkness that is surrounding us. So it's there for sure. But I think for me, without the acknowledgement of what is surrounding it and without really reckoning with all of the dark matter, um, it doesn't feel true. Uh, you're a national leader uh, when it comes to this. How, how how inspired are you by this talk, by the last hour? Oh, my gosh. This is, this is just what I needed. I hope that you all leave here with um, just the sense there's so many people out there telling compelling stories that are focused on what's possible and the possibility and that the young people um, need support and need help. Um, I'm, I'm, I, but I do think it's important what Lily said is that we can't tie a pretty bow on it. You know, I'm hopeful. I'm an optimist. I do believe we can do it. And the reason I believe that we can do it is backed by fact because we have all the climate solutions. We have the technology. What is missing is the political will where the culture comes in and every single one of us with our daily habits can ease our eco-anxiety, but we can help shift that culture. Yeah. Um, but 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 I do want to like make sure that I'm very clear and I'm clear in my writing. I'm clear in every talk. I mean, we're working towards 2030. Mm-hmm. That is six years away. Yeah. And the science is not good. I mean, when yeah. the climate scientists and the meteorologists are literally, this is a technical term, yeah. freaking out. Yeah. Um, we all need to get involved. This is a call to action. So I, I, I mean, this conversation is so exciting. The The books, the art is just... It, it means so much, but we need to amplify it all. And we need to bring as many people in as possible. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is needed. We need you in the movement. And yes, it is a movement, even if you don't feel comfortable. I've just because people always ask me, are you soup, pro soup or anti soup? Um, and I'm anti, I love soup, but don't throw it on paintings. So that's kind of like my view, but I understand why 
it was an important thing for some people, but it's not my style, not how I necessarily think how things, how, you know, how things move. But gosh, are there lots of headlines about how important climate action is. But even if you're anti-soup and don't feel comfortable with that at all, that's not, that doesn't define the movement, right? That that's just a, a there, there's all kinds of opportunities for you to get involved. And the fact, Fabiana, that in the middle of an atmospheric river, look at this auditorium. I mean, I know, right? Right. It's amazing. Yeah. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> All right. Any parting thoughts? Anybody? Uh, I want to say, I think what you said is so important. And I, I was like, we have to talk about this when you said six years. So the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has been telling us that we are, well, they, were t they told us 12 years ago, but now we're at below six years before we hit extremely catastrophic levels of global war warming that it becomes very hard to undo. So you all he have heard the science, but the international body has said that. And so I want to emphasize that this is not just, th th this is shared knowledge in our climate movement uh, that we, um, we don't have a lot of time. And so we have to shift the culture in order to get our politicians to be courageous and to take the steps that they need to take. Uh, and I love what you said. I, I always think about the three spheres of influence, political, economic, and cultural. And economic is an extremely powerful one. The corporations on this planet have a lot of power. And so wherever your sphere of influence is in those three is where to act. Um, but just so you all know, as we think about timelines is that um, the six-year timeline is something to stay engaged, to stay aware about, follow, find out who the IPCC is, read about them, and, and understand why it is that the scientists of the world are urging us uh, to act. Ladies, thank you for your time and knowledge. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much, Lily. So course. much, Damien, Heather Leather. Thank you, Heather. Thank you. Lily, Alexander, and Fabiana for that great program. So our authors are available to sign books tonight until 9 p.m. Alexandria and Faviana will have a table in the museum where you can see Faviana's art. And Lily and Heather will be signing books in the lobby. So books are for sale by um, Books in Campbell if you would like to purchase any. And then, of course, if you enjoyed tonight's program, I hope you will consider donating. There's a QR code on the back of your program that takes you to the donation page where you can use PayPal or a credit card. Um, and if you think your organization would like to donate to Silicon Valley Reads, please let us know. Our contact information is on the website. So thank you so much for being here tonight and for tuning in online. The video of this event will actually be posted. So tell your friends. Um, we'll get you that link soon. And then there are almost 200 free events for all ages upcoming through March. Lily will be at Saratoga Library tomorrow morning and Morgan Hill Library tomorrow afternoon. Heather has a packed schedule, so come see her at libraries all across the county through the weekend. We also have visits from two of our recommended reading authors. Claire Frank is the author of Burnt, A Memoir of Fighting Fire, and Isha Shabra, the author of Working to Restore. Our website, siliconvalleyreads.org, has a complete listing of events, and we look forward to seeing you at some of these. If we all work together, we can ensure a greener tomorrow starts today. Good night. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.